Hello and welcome to Rose Tinted Black and White Television, the review show. I'm Guy Morgan, my co-host is David Newell, and this is where we review episodes that flickered across UK TV from 1956, The Serious Crisis, to 1974, The Three Day Week. Most of it will be in black and white, even if it was shot in colour, and maybe being shown in colour now, such as Thunderbirds. Five, four... Three, two, one. As you can see, I'm wearing a shirt that's worthy of Tracy Island. Yeah, very good. And is that low hum that I can hear in the background? Is that your is that your slowly rotating ceiling fan? Would that it were, actually. I forgot to bring them back from the Orient. But you've been on your holes. Yes, I was in lovely Devon, lovely talky. <laughs> The sort of ident you might have heard during the 1960s. The region known as Westwood. Oh yes, Westwood, wasn't it? Yes, Westwood. Or you'd have kind of Southern. Was um, was Westwood where you'd have the unknown, like Gus Honeybun, that kind of thing. Because what you used to be able to do is when you used to, when you used to hold a magazine looking, it was new at the time. And then what you would get, all like the children's kids' TV listings, at the back by by ITV regions um, and you know we had Harlick HTV as, you know, as it was and that was it when we switched from having a black and white TV we lost the power to receive Granada and instead when we had colour it was it switched over to Harlick TV different signal and you just used to see these little regional programs you know very specific to certain areas of the country and you wondered God, what is that? You know, it wasn't either good enough or perhaps as weighty enough to go national, but it was viewed as being um, perhaps good enough for for the regions. Yes, I can imagine that there would be several entries saying, here be dragons. <laughs> for anyone who is too young to remember what ITV used to look like or is from um, somewhere else on the globe, there were almost as many ITV regions as there are English County Cricket Clubs. So everything was split bizarrely and they all ran their own different schedules. Mm. And one of the things that may have worked against shows like The Saint and The Avengers is that unless you got scheduled at peak time, even if you got scheduled at peak time, there was no joint consensus unless there was some kind of deal amongst the different independent contractors. So you could, say, for example, be on a nationally known TV programme, make an appearance and then get phoned up throughout the week as different people saw it in different parts of the country, saying, well done, what a shame you didn't win. <laughs> Yeah, it's really odd if we think back to, you know, no network stripping, you know, where that idea is that you have a programme which goes out at a, a fixed time, you know, at every single commercial TV station in the country. That wasn't to be the case. Um, I've just briefly looked up and I thought it struck a bell. Um, and yes, Gus Honeybun was the station mascot for Westwood. TV. Oh, right. Different from yes. the logo. Uh, yes, 
Yeah. Um, and thankfully, as far as I'm aware, um, only a cursory look, he was not marked in a scandal either then or since. Was Gus Honeyburn made of flesh and bone or was he made out of synthetic fur? He was a rabbit puppet. Right. Let's give it a name. <laughs> I'm surprised he hasn't got his own cult following uh, unless it's so cult that I haven't been made aware of it. You know, those things which, which you think, right, have I remembered that right? You know, such as Lenny the Lion or Tinker and Tucker um, or Ollie Beak. Or have I dreamt that? No, I've Ollie not. Beak existed. Was it an owl in a school cap? That's what it was, wasn't it? Indeed. Um, to be honest, I can't exactly tell you which show it belonged to, but it did cause nightmares. <laughs> You would have, like I said, those very strong, you know, regional identities. And, and you would also have that idea of, you know, TV series, which would then be, be kind of hoped to, to be picked up um, nationally. And particularly with, with ITV, they had a very good, I think, was it Patrick Drumgall, who, who, who seemed to make it their mission to scare kids in Southern TV and, and sometimes within Harlech TV. That idea of uh, having things like I think was it children of the children of the stones, mm. and, yes. and all those those kind of like unsettling, um, but but intelligent um, TV series. You just think, oh, no, is this for kids? No, <laughs> a descendant of Quatermass, I would have thought, and in fact, kind of. <laughs> very similar to the final Quatermass um, series, which happened in the late 70s, I think, with John Mills. Mm. Children's TV series were quite dark, particularly in the 70s, as opposed to the 1960s, when they were very colourful and usually manned by puppets. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? I think so. <laughs> I think I know the direction. And you know what? He doesn't mean here come the double-deckers. <laughs> no. Um, Talking Pictures TV have pulled off quite a coup, I think, with the Jerry Anderson stuff, because not only have they got Fireball XL5, which we've talked about before, and I was looking forward to it being in colour, and it wasn't, and they've only played 13 of the 39 episodes, but they will be coming back for more. But in the past couple of weeks, they've started showing Thunderbirds. High watermark, some might say. I still have a huge allegiance to Stingray. Yeah. But I thought it was quite interesting because I don't recall having seen Thunderbirds since it was on a black and white 625 line television. So when they started showing it on Talking Pictures TV, it was in colour. And I was six again because I remember all the hype. There was a huge amount of hype before Thunderbirds, probably to do with marketing. And there was even a competition that they had in TV Times, where you had to colour in a line drawing of Thunderbird 2 emerging from its cliff face lair. Mm. And I don't think I ever sent it off, actually, but I did get the colours right. You uh, could have won. I could have done. I think probably, uh, and this is what you call in-depth research, I had seen magazines which showed that Thunderbird 2 was in fact green. Mm. So I, I did get that right. It, Thankfully, you didn't go down that route of, of popping down to your local toy shop and seeing the dinky Thunderbird 
to some of which were in that bizarre metallic blue color which looked particularly stylish but wasn't the one that we saw on tv wasn't the green one that we saw on tv no um, both are serious collector's items if in the box and your little thunderbird four <laughs> yes it was very interesting watching the first episode again because <clears throat> one thing i don't remember is the hood makes an immediate appearance he's in yes, off the bat there. uh and you thought oh right okay <clears throat> and he makes a big deal of trying to steal international rescue secrets using his half brother who just happens to work for jeff tracy oh kato oh no kirano isn't it kirano yes, yes. um what are the chances of that happening mm -hmm. um, shot. um and from what I gather, I mean, they're not particularly close, but they do have a psychic bond. They have a psychic bond, but I don't think they send one of like birthday cards or Christmas cards. No. any of that. Well, it's the thought that counts, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it's, it's strange, you know, if you, you said about it kind of being groundbreaking in, in many ways um, and, and the budget that it had um, assigned. Uh, and also, you know, the thing that you have to think is quite daring to have a 50-minute pitch show. Yeah. Um, and when I watched that first episode, I was thinking, oh, I kind of remember it did seem to drag a bit. And there was no fast forward, obviously, in those days. <laughs> but yeah, there was a lot of stuff in the air. Um, as my friend Hugh pointed out, uh, watching the Thunderbirds, what they did was they spent the first 10-15 minutes setting it up so it's mm -hmm. very similar to casualty i think yes the thunderbirds family the thunderbirds team may not appear much like those episodes of the saint which should be described as being saint light um where rog does his opening narration and then he kind of shuffles off to the background for a little bit until everything happens and he needs to start doing some chicanery and punching people but yeah the the, the thunderbirds format who is not going to like a TV series that starts with exciting music and clips from that episode you're about to watch. Thunderbirds are go. Yes, and I think that is one of the interesting trademarks of the Anderson. I'm talking about, I'm going to say Anderson, so that it <laughs> encompasses Jerry and Sylvia. Um, yes, yeah. Because a lot of people talk about Jerry Anderson. Sylvia Anderson was just as influential, particularly about the look. And don't forget, she actually did character voices as well. And she's mm -hmm. not a yeah. bad voice actress. One of the very interesting things about that is it's got great music. It's Barry Gray again, isn't it? Yeah. And they really love a zippily edited opening sequence. Yes, and it is one of those things that, to be honest, I haven't appreciated it so much from Firewall XL5. I think they did it in Stingray and then particularly in Thunderbirds where you have that music You've got that insistent drum beat, which you also had in Stingray, uh, and very fast cutting. Mm. 
from you know standard footage of things rising out of the the ground or through swimming pools or launching into space and then intercutting with as you say the happenings of this week's episode which in the case of the one yesterday was a lot of puppets in bandages because they'd been horribly burned trying to go into this pit of fire you keep away from there um <laughs> i mean some of the episodes the, the one for example very iconic image where they have to move the empire state building or oh, sorry the empire state building is being moved um i can possibly for a, a mcdonald's extension or something like that i'm not quite sure why um and of course no matter how much health and safety and risk assessing has been put in place by the civil engineers doing this there is some problem and you know the, the tracy boys are called in they don't usually turn up unannounced do they um they have to have a request you know i don't know what the line is what the number is or or anything like that um yeah i always thought that that thunderbirds is maybe set about a, a couple of years in the future of when it was shown and and one of the things that they always had was one of their provisos is that there's no photography how would they cope nowadays with, with people's mobile phones at their disposal yes i mean there was the whole thing with the hood where they managed to set lady penelope onto pursuing the hood mm. along the m1 up to birmingham now we know where the m1 runs we've mm. had this discussion before on the saint where the m1 would also appear to run up to birmingham did it in the old days um <laughs> I'm sure that there must be motorway historians who are screaming at their speakers saying, of course it did, until. But apparently that was that was how it was in the early 60s. It went to Birmingham. And then Lady Penelope tells Parker to ruthlessly machine gun the Hood's fake police car. And luckily, because the Hood is involved in the accident the film in his secret spy camera which is in his cap springs out and is exposed and so he's lost all those pictures doesn't he try another one where he has a camera hidden inside a mechanical mouse and um instead of the intricate networking and um, systems within the thunderbirds machines it's just lady penelope um screaming and reacting to the fact that there's a mouse running around her feet that's all that he gets on his mouse camera sorry hood you're not going to succeed this time despite your glowing eyes <laughs> so returning to that first episode actually it was really enjoyable for someone mm -hmm. of my vintage and i can imagine exactly how a six-year-old who'd been starved of extensive puppetry and long-form narrative combined would have reacted to that, um, plus all the marketing that was aimed at you and all the stuff that was in TV21 and TV comic. Well, I'll be back in one moment because there's something I should have brought along. Talk amongst yourselves. Okay. Oh, back. Sorry, I was just getting a... I know this is a podcast and a radio show, but I have bought a, um, a visual. And I see that you have a Waddington's Thunderbird game 
Is that is that a repo or is that genuinely? No, that's that's a sixties original. Um, as it says, a unique type of um, team game for one, two, three, or four players. This is nineteen sixty six by John Waddington. You get your, your lovely map. You get your spinner, your cards, and you get your, your your instructions and all your little markers. Plus a message inside from Jeff Tracy himself. And until it's from Jeff Tracy. It's signed by Jeff Tracy. Good luck and good hunting, says Jeff at the end, um, because it says you must defeat the evil schemes of the hood. And must is in bold type. So I'm a bit scared. So I better do what he says. Um, there was loads of stuff kind of out of that. Like I said, it's really odd Thunderbird 2 through um, Dinky, but perhaps fewer of the others. Yes. Fewer that are, always looked as if Thunderbird 5 would be a bit messy. To, to have as a toy or a kit because it wouldn't stand up and it wouldn't fly no i think you'd probably have to hang it from the ceiling um and that would be quite difficult in the old days because parents objected to you trying to knock holes in the ceiling <laughs> yeah i mean thankfully in the 70s when um blue tack first came along that was it i remember putting our christmas decorations up in the 70s it was like laying plastic explosive around the house. It really was. Just like putting C4 in the corners of the room. Um, and until we discovered that it would then gouge out chunks of your embossed wallpaper. And uh, myself and my brother then had to colour back in the, the bald patches. We needed a lot of orange and brown pens because it was the 70s. <laughs> that is a whole episode of a sitcom right there. The good thing is, you know, Thunderbird still has, for people of a certain age, it is still a good cultural reference point. I always say, as an ongoing joke, uh, that the current Newcastle manager, um, Eddie Howe, reminds me of Alan Tracy. And usually when I say that, people know exactly what I mean. And only the other week, um, St Chad's Drive was being resurfaced. There was a lot of roadworks going on for a few weeks as well as leading up to our Copenhagen crossing and one of the machines which was parked up overnight uh, I just described to to a friend at work seeing that looked as if it had come out of a pod beneath Thunderbird 2 and, and again they knew exactly what I meant and precisely that sort of thing is that a lot of people had fondness for various bits of kit one of which was the mole Mm. which was on yesterday's show. And the mole is this, well, I don't want to get all Freudian about it, but it's a very pointy. It's a very pointy item. It looks a bit like the machine out of At The Earth's Call. Yes, yeah. And it goes down, I think it's rocket propelled, it goes down at uh, 70 degrees and then manages to go into reverse we did run it backwards and forwards to work out whether they were running the film backwards and forwards or whether they'd somehow managed to uh, push it out and get it back. But um, yes, that was not quite so entertaining, partly because there was no subplot with the hood. It was possibly a little subversive because it opened with a lot of stock wildlife footage. Oh, right. And this is real wildlife. Yes, not marionette wildlife. So that when you cut backwards and forwards, it feels slightly strange. Anyway, what the wildlife is getting agitated about is this thing on legs called the sidewinder. Oh, is that, like that? Is it, it, it's the thing that uproots trees and, and stuff like that. 
Yes, so it's the US Army deforesting an area of jungle, testing this new weapon which will help them deal with bushfire wars, uh, as okay. they put it. I couldn't imagine where they might be talking about. <laughs> In the end, they probably just decided it was cheaper to use weed killer um, to destroy jungle. But then it falls down a hole. And this hole apparently is there because the US Army dumped a whole lot of kit after the Second World War and just left it to rot and it filled itself in. And don't you know it, what goes around comes around and the Sidewinder collapses 300 feet into this pit of fire. Oh, it's the worst place to go. Quite. And another thing that I've noticed is that nuclear reactors in Thunderbirds, whether they're on atomic jets or they're on the sidewinder, actually need refueling more often than a Cadillac, basically. Right. Okay. Cool. Who knew? Yeah, I know. It's extremely strange, but their, uh, their power seems to run out. And I presume it's because they haven't got the requisite number of isotopes or whatever it is rather than atomic power being one of those things that's meant to last forever. The Thunderbirds are eavesdropping, um, so they've got more channels open than Alexa, basically. And they offer their help to the US Army, who say, OK, and Brains rides along. There's obviously much sliding down shoots for Scott and Virgil. Not for brains, you just arrives via a lift. They arrive, save the day, they work out a way of actually widening the hole and then using levers. I'm pretty sure whoever is using a winch, it's the same winch footage. Right, okay. That is used throughout the series of Thunderbirds. Uh, and anyway, they're all pulled out. Uh, the crew are safe. The Sidewinder is has been brought back and is free to destroy jungles of the future. Hurrah! And the only thing that Scott Tracy asks is that the US Army keeps shtum about everything. That seems a very reasonable request. Again, you know, people had mobile phones back then, God, it'd be hell to pay. Well, that's right. And despite the commanding officer saying, I wish I had those guys on my team, doesn't really seem to show any interest in finding out about all this wonderful technology that they have produced. So they remain a secret organisation apart from when they're making very public rescues. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's very strange because, you know, they don't wear, um, you know, masks. You know, they don't have alter egos or anything like that. I know, in, you know, in some episodes, Brains goes undercover to play someone else. And sometimes Lady Penelope does as, as well. But but mainly the, the Tracy boys are just really upfront about it. Yes, much in the way that Simon Templar is. Yeah. You know, it's, hey, aren't you the famous Simon Templar? Yes, I am. <laughs> So I'm looking forward to watching Thunderbirds unfold. But as we're talking about the Anderson product and its various motifs, which they, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, the same kind mm. of things keep appearing later on. So after Thunderbirds, was it Joe 90 or Captain Scarlet? Oh, right. They, I think it may have been Joe 90, possibly, yeah. 
Joe Ninety, Captain Scarlet. They're kind of like head and head to head. Because yeah. Captain Scarlet was always viewed as a darker series because there was that sinister aspect of the Mysterons, the idea that people within society are being being taken over. Um, an insidious invasion rather than the upfront crookery of the hood and the like. And the Mysterons descendants appear to be the aliens from UFO because it's almost exactly the same setup. Ah, uh, yes, um, same kind of thing. Again, the Mysterons, you know, come with their own music theme. Um, I think Portishead also gave it a working out as well, which is fab on their, on their album. Um, so, yeah, it seems much, much darker. And, and, and then this idea of an unkillable hero. Yes, which kind of works. But the trouble is, like Superman or like Captain Jack, people who can't die have to be hampered in some way from going about their business. Uh, so with Superman, he has to have things like green kryptonite, I think it is, isn't mm, it? Is it? Yeah. Uh, there is also red and gold. I never really understood what they actually uh, meant. With Captain Jack, you had to do various things to him, including bury him for 2,000 years, mm. when you must have got extremely bored. And Captain Scarlet, obviously, who just seemed to shake himself. Uh, Captain Black, was he also immortal? Uh, yeah, he was kind of like the ultimate turncoat, being you know one of the first victims of, of the Mysterons, and still kind of like putting in the appearance and, and working for Spectrum. Again, lots of hardware on display. You know, you have the Angel Interceptors. Uh, you had, is it the SPV? Again, loads of dinky toys and model kits to tie in with those. There's a lot of similarities between Captain Scarlet and UFO, apart from the unkillable hero. Though Ed Bishop has a pretty good go at that. He's driven to distraction on several occasions. One of the things, as we've said before, if you've got the models, it's the same thing as we've discussed with locations, there is a tendency to overuse them. <laughs> yes. Um, it's like, oh, um, run out of milk. Could you go down the shops? I'll go in my Spectrum Pursuit there. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. That lots of lingering shots because that's what kids want to see. If you're mm, an adult, I want to see the toys. Yeah, you want to see the toys. And if you're an adult, you tend to notice that things drag a bit and you sort of think that actually, and they're usually shot from one angle so you didn't you don't get reverse shots as much um you don't get overhead shots which they could have done just even if they cropped up throughout the series they, they given more options in the editing given that they was one of the anderson signatures was that really tight fast intercutting in the titles and another um, kind of trope that you you'd see is whilst we would have the distant shots of all the hardware and models and explosions and, and stuff like that um would be those more close-up inserts of human hands i have been looking for that there's only been one or two so far um and ah, okay in fireball xl5 i think they had some human hands but i think they what they've done is they've heavily gloved them up in marigolds or something and um, <laughs> so that there's there's some dexterity, but not a lot. I have to say that actually less is more, because if you look at uh, Fireball XL5 stories, they get wrapped up fairly quickly in mm -hmm. 24 minutes um, and probably could have 
even been shorter. With Thunderbirds, it's everything needs to go up on the screen. So it's much better when there is a subplot involving somebody like the Hood or somebody uh, else. Or Tintin, um, something like that. And and don't forget, we didn't have the Netflix options that, um, or, or Apple or Prime options that we have now, that if we were watching the series, you could just fast forward through the credits. And, and maybe that is one of the reasons why some of those theme tunes are, are kind of so ingrained because you had to listen to them. Yes, but they were damn good theme tunes. That that helps as well. And I think we've spoken before about how, uh, it, you know, even with The Saint, which has a very, very short title sequence, but it's a very iconic title sequence because of the music and because of the graphics. Just injects straight into your hippocampus, I think is the word I was yes, looking for. Yes, there you go, yes. For the life of me, I can't remember the theme for Joe 90. And... With UFO, tonally, I don't think it fits with the series. And mm. we've discussed with UFO being the first live-action series, it has problems, I think, segueing between the model shots and the live-action. And there are times when the music doesn't match. What's the... going on on screen? <laughs> no. Unlike, for example, The Prisoner. Yes. Yeah, which is very detailed music. And any TV series who produces a soundtrack that has a track entitled Number Two Follows Number Six to a Stone Boat, uh, you just think, oh, crikey, that sounds like a very catchy thing. Catchy thing, but a bit sinister. Yes, and that was one of the great things about The Prisoner. The Avengers had a lot of cues that were adapted, but it's you know they fitted the jauntier bits and the uh, possibly more sinister bits. I think I've said this before and might return to UFO. Um, it's on repeat again, and we'll just be rolling along somewhere. I think it's on the Horror Channel. Having watched them all, it brings us back to that problem of ITV regionalisation because mm. none of them were shown necessarily in the right order. And, <laughs> Same time. and uh, somebody has spent a great deal of time, I can't remember her name, but it's on the UFO fan site. Okay trying to construct a chronology for events that happen in UFO. And it's quite hard. And one of the things is it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. She's also tried to establish which year things were meant to be happening. All right, okay, yeah. And it's a bit of a problem. But if you haven't actually worked out your series Bible, which I'm not entirely mm. sure that they had, I said, oh, well, let's make it a bit like the Mysterons or, or whatever. Um, and we'll have a secret organisation that's set in a film studio because that will come in handy. And then you have a hiatus of five months while you have to switch studios in which you lose three or four major members of your cast. But because things are jumbled up, you're never quite certain where other people have gone and why people have suddenly popped back up again. I mean, one of one of the other interesting things is is for most of these series is that unlike maybe series nowadays, there's no, or there doesn't appear to be, any concession 
or attempt to have like an origin episode. Well, the UFO did. Um, I'm not entirely sure that it fits comfortably uh, with everything, but because the only kind of characterization that really seems to have legs is Ed Bishop's marriage breaking up and the strain of oh, right, the yes. secrecy. Yeah. And I think it's Suzanne Neve who plays his wife. And there's a the whole thing about how his son gets killed and or gets run over. And then mysteriously, Philip Maddock appears to be the stepfather and hardly says anything and just lurks around in the background and then plays a completely different character in another episode. And they can't get the life-saving stuff to the son in time and the boy dies. And so Straker has flashbacks uh, about all of this. But apart from that, there's no real attempt at long-term characterization. And they do have a couple of those devices, one of which is in Fireball XL5. There were two back-to-back. One is that it's a fairy story being told to a young boy who's being babysat by Dr. Venus about space pirates. Uh, And then the next one is all some kind of weird dream. I don't know if they've been eating something particularly spicy. And so they wake up and it turns out that that whatever's happened is not the case. I think there's an episode in Captain Scarlet where Captain Scarlet actually dies, but that turns out to be a dream, if I remember rightly. There's another one in UFO where basically... The Rufty Tufty second in command has gone on a bender and is then sent to a health farm and has one hell of a hangover and hallucinates an entire adventure. Oh, so you can see where Dallas got the idea. <laughs> uh, yes, and I suppose you know, we've got, right, so Captain Scarlet Joe 90 again, very powerful kind of like gadgetry within their uh, memorable theme tunes. And then you've got the very odd, almost as if we all dreamt it, maybe it's just in our subconscious, the Secret Service. Yes, with um, Stanley Unwin. Stanley, Professor Stanley Unwin, yes. Now, again, Guy, you may, I, I, I don't think I've seen it since it originally came out. You can tell me whether this is true or not. In the Secret Service... Is there a vicar who can be shrunk down to fit into a briefcase? I believe so. And I think... Thank God for that. Thank um, God for that. Thank God, right. Well, thank heavens for that. I can't remember the dynamics of the Anderson household at this time. (laughs) Um, Because it seemed to have carried on as as a partnership. But I, I suspect that it is one of those ideas that should have been smothered on waking up was it done as a dare almost kind of like a contractual obligation type thing you mean like one of those rubbish albums that prince churned out to get out of his contract yeah i just have to do this i don't think they were trying to get out of a contract i just can't (laughs) understand the premise behind it (laughs) again you could get the little yellow car which was available through dinky yeah. Um, that's all I remember because you just think, you know, even at school, if someone had have come up to you, even someone you trusted and said, have you seen that new puppet show? It's about a vicar that can get shrunk down to fit into a briefcase. That would be a safeguarding issue nowadays. <laughs> yes. I mean, as a concept, 
from a technical point of view, shrinking a puppet so it can fit into a briefcase. <laughs> it's just making life difficult for your colleagues, basically. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's up there with Ben Murphy as the Gemini man. You can only go invisible for 15 minutes a day. Why 15 minutes? Doesn't matter. Just live with it. <laughs> live with it, Ben. So we have kind of covered the Anderson programmes. Obviously, there is still a huge affection for those and there have been reboots both in cgi and puppets i think tracy island a few years yeah. back made a made a comeback it's been lovingly homaged in things like is it a matter of loath and death didn't they shoot a new one as well because they they managed to recover a lot of the props and puppets again this is one of those i suppose to the diehard fans a a nightmare scenario where at the end of the production, rather than everything lovingly being put into storage, uh, a lot of it was just thrown into a skip. And at the time, you know, people, you know, production assistants or anything like that, just thought, oh, I don't know, I'll take that home for me little lad or me little girl, I'll take it home for them. There was a lockdown project by um, a bunch of people who were basically stuck in a flat. So, Oh, be... right, yes, yes, there was, wasn't there, yeah. And... They weren't too bad. They reminded me very much of Fireball XL5 rather than Thunderbirds because it was set on a spaceship. And so you had fairly limited room for sets and you couldn't have huge extravagant explosions and, uh, and stuff like that. So it was quite amusing, quite well done. And given the sort of current technology, shows what you can do with four people instead of half a dozen from more than 60 years ago so yeah fair play to them i don't know if they were hoping that it would turn into um a commission for a full series and i don't really know what happened to it but yes there is a huge fan base out there for the anderson programs and i'm not knocking any of it that there are certain series which i think promised more than they delivered and in a way we just have to remember as well that the legacy continues and, and we should give a shout out to the still hard working at i think he's 97 or 98 david graham oh fantastic who, yes yeah david graham who was the voices for many of you know the anderson series of of the 60s and 70s still going strong Playing Grandpa in Peppa Pig. Still working. Yes, and hopefully in Fine Fettle. Last mm. time we looked up his IMDb records. So I think for the moment, that closes the Anderson discussion. Uh, we might Closes the Anderson tapes. <laughs> <laughs> we may well return, as Captain Scarlet kept on doing. Yes, yeah. Right, I think we've gone on for a bit. We have returned from dave's southwestern jaunts um we have yes yeah. <clears throat> agatha christie themed almost thank you dave uh this has been roast into black and white television uh the review show where for once we haven't been talking about the saint that much and only really mentioned the avengers a couple of times only a bit we did talk in depth about our appreciation for the anderson universe um, mm. of puppetry and live action it has to be said. But it is so vast that we will be returning to it. Um, you cannot possibly mm. encompass it in a whole lifetime or even several. Um, no, yeah. It's... So this has been Roost into Black and White Television, the review show. 
I've been Guy Morgan. My co-host, as ever, has been David Newell. I thank you. Thank you.